theyeshiva.net. And he says, you know, I'm going back tomorrow to Eretz Yisrael. Write down your names and your mother's names. I'm going to go to Yerushalayim, to the Kaisel. I'll put in your note, your kvittel, your pidyot, your requests in the Kaisel. And I'm sure Hashem will bless you. Great. They give him the note, and off he goes back to Yerushalayim. Five years later, he comes to town, and he meets... The woman that he met five years ago, he says, no, any good news? She says, Baruch Hashem, ten children. He says, ten children? Mazel tov, mazel tov, mazel tov. He says, ten times mazel tov. But five years, I mean, that's a pretty, uh, pretty fast. I mean, you work fast. She says, yeah, the first year was triplets. The next year were twins. Then we decided we need a break. And then again, twins and triplets. Baruch Hashem, ten children. She says, that's unbelievable, that's awesome. Where's your husband? I want to give him a kiss, a hug, wish a mazel tov. She says, my husband is in Eretz Yisrael. What's in Eretz Yisrael? He went to Yerushalayim, he went to the Kaisal. Why? He's looking for the note. He wants to take it out. <laughs> Education today has become a... Uh, Education has always been a challenge. Adam Arishan couldn't make peace between his two children. And if you look at Sefer Barishas, from beginning to end, it's basically a reflection on sibling rivalry. It just ends off each time a little better. It starts off with one brother actually murdering, murdering his other brother. It continues with one brother being cursed. It continues with one brother being expelled. It continues with one brother trying to kill his other brother continues with brothers throwing their brothers into a pit and almost killing him. And it actually ends with forgiveness and reconciliation. And the parents are always somewhere in the midst of this crisis, of this difficulty. But it reached a point now, what they call the tipping point, where many things that were under the carpet and under the rug for decades have now emerged when truth emerges, two things happen. There's people who will deny it. They like, you remember when we had, uh, we Jews were into Hollywood kitchens and wall-to-wall carpets. Why wall-to-wall carpets? Because a lot of things have to be put under the carpet. So you need a carpet from wall-to-wall. When finally the carpet gets removed and everybody sees all of the infections, so there's always a group of people who deny it and blame those who are talking about it. I can't tell you how many emails I am fortunate to receive about the destruction that I am causing single-handedly by talking about molestation, child abuse in schools and homes and camps, the stigma of mental illness, the fact that today everybody is perfect, nobody has any challenges, you're not allowed to talk about challenges. Somebody needs therapy, there's sometimes a story, he told me he can't send his child to therapy, there's going to be a stigma for Shaduchim. Never mind what happens in other, whatever, I'm not going to get into all the accusations. But there's always a group that denies it. 
There's another group that sighs. Oy vey, oy vey, oy, 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 oy. And we're good at that. We are good at worrying. What's the definition of a Jewish telegram? The mother sends a telegram, start worrying, details to follow. <laughs> Somebody asked me, what's the definition of a Jew? I said, if he doesn't feel guilty, he blames himself. When a Jew makes a fist, the next step is a shamnu, bagadnu, gazonu. When Trump makes a fist, check out your nose. A Jew makes a fist and apologizing for 40, 50, 60 years that we're alive. That's another element. We whine and we sigh. And then there's a third element. And that is those who look at reality and say, there's only two ways to live. Either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Or you're busy living or you're busy quetching. One of the two. In every situation of life, in Chicago or anywhere else in the world, as a parent and as an educator, as a friend, as a grandparent, as a rabbi, as a layman, as anyone, any person, I'm either part of the problem or I'm part of the solution. I'm privileged to speak tonight to an organization, for an organization, Madrigas Midwest, which has proven to identify itself as part of the solution. As Jews, we are empowered with one mission. And that is, in every situation, to see how we can redefine it into a meaningful experience. Yaakov Avinu battles with an adversary all night. He wants to kill him. He can't kill him, he does second best. He maims him. He dislocates his hip. He wounds his sciatic nerve. And when Yaakov is about, in the morning, they're about to part ways. The man says, let me go. The man, the adversary says, let me go. And Yaakov says, I will not send you away till you don't give me a blessing. I ask you, a gangster attacks you in an alley. And tries to kill you all night. What do you do? You call 911, you punch him in the nose, you run away, you ask him for a bracha? Start asking him for blessings? Yaakov was teaching the Jewish people a lesson on history. When you encounter an adversary, when you're engaging in a difficult, sometimes bloody battle, psychological or physical, emotional or spiritual or social, on any level, it's not enough to get out. It's not enough to run. It's not enough to escape or flee. I will not send you away, I will not leave this encounter until I do not come out more blessed, more whole, more potent, more creative, more successful, more happy. This is a generation of exposure. Welcome. If you don't believe me, you'll see it with your children. This is a generation where everything that's been buried and repressed for decades, maybe generations, the kids will not stand for it anymore. Think about when some of you were children in school, we were all fine with hypocrisy. Not true? In your yeshiva, when you were young, there were no hypocrites. You believed anything anybody said. Who believed? And you know what? We were fine. Today, oh my God. The moment my children sense this honesty, they're out. They're out. And that's why a Judaism that has even one iota of dishonesty in it today will not survive. 
I have the privilege, the, the challenge, the privilege of speaking every week to hundreds and hundreds of youths, parents, educators, and youth who have left Judaism. I've spoken to dozens of mothers and fathers. I say mothers first because they usually, forgive me, have their you know, finger on the pulse a little more. Fathers are eating lunch. <laughs> or dinner, whatever. And I always ask the mothers the same thing. You have a family. Which child left Judaism? Which one? Was it the most selfish one? The most narcissistic one? The most brute and coarse one? And the least intelligent? And they'll always say, my most sensitive, my deepest, the one that was the holiest soul, the one that when he was five years old, he was a shining star. He was the blessing of the family. He's left. Isn't that funny? In hundreds and hundreds of families, in Borough Park, in Williamsburg, in Crown Heights, in Muncie, in Lakewood, in Chicago, in Toronto, in B'nai Brak, in Yerushalayim, in London, Budavilst. Hasidim, Yeshivisha, Litvisha, more modern, right-wing, left-wing, almost right-wing, centrist, far-centrist, far-right, extremely right, I don't even know, from New Zealand all the way to Brazil, in terms of spiritual climate. Fascinating to send them my regards. <laughs> And then put it on vibrate. <laughs> Please. Why is it? There's one reason for it. I say to you, our youth today is allergic to an iota of dishonesty, hypocrisy, toxicity, stupidity. Einstein said two things are infinite, the universe and stupidity. The latter is more infinite than the former. Our youngsters, girls and boys, growing up in schools and yeshivas and day schools and moizdas, chadar and palmatoidas, of all the entire blessed rainbow of God's people, are very, very deep souls. They're sensitive souls. They're honest souls. As Rabbi Tversky, the psychiatrist from Pittsburgh once told me, he says, they're not off the derech. We made our derech so narrow. We crippled our derech. A lot of people were spit out of it. In other words, the main challenge is not always with the youth. Sometimes there's a deeper challenge with adults. Am I ready to look deep into my heart, into my mind, into my soul, and reevaluate my methods of education? My marriage, my relationship with my spouse, my relationship with my sons, my relationship with my parents, with my siblings, with my daughters, my relationship with Hashem, with God. And don't think your children don't know everything that's going on. They don't respond to our conscious, they respond to our subconscious. If you want to know what you look like in your subconscious, ask your daughter. If you want to know who you really are, look at your children, they'll tell you who you really are. Not who everybody else thinks you are. This is challenging. It's very difficult. Raising children today, I guess always, there's a certain element of mysterious nefesh. What do I mean? Not to be martyrs. Kids hate parents who are martyrs. I once heard a mother tell her children, the only reason I didn't get divorced from your creepy father is because of you. She thought her children will say, wow, mommy, we adore you forever and ever. You're like the most, you know, you're God's gift to humanity. And one said, you shouldn't have done us any favors, mommy. We like to be martyrs as Jews. It's not healthy. It's not, it's not, it's not wholesome. It's not sane. 
I want to say something. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky is a chitzadik levrocha. Once asked, it says when Yaakov ran away from uh, from Esau, he went to Lavan. So Rashi says, from the matters at 14 years he spent in yeshiva. So the question is, what did he learn in the yeshiva of Shema Nevin that his father Yitzchak and his Zayd Avram couldn't teach him? What did Shema Nevin know that Yitzchak and Avram didn't know? Good question. 14 years, what did he learn? He learned the Litvish Shadarach instead of the Polish Shadarach. The brisket. What did he learn in Yeshiva Nevin? So two people say the same thing. Two sages. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and the Ostrov Tzerebbe. In Mary and They both say, Yaakov knew how to be a Jew in Eretz Yisrael. He was now leaving to the diaspora. He had to learn Torah's Hagolos. How are you a Jew in exile? How are you a Jew when you're living with your father-in-law and mother-in-law? That's a whole different challenge. When you leave the Holy Land, you leave Yitzchak's bosom. You, live, you leave Avram's nest. You go to a crook Lavan in exile in Mesopotamia. In Charon, what is the image of a Jew in that environment? That's a separate Torah. It took him 14 years to learn that Torah. We have been conditioned to teach our children a certain form of Judaism. But today, there's a consciousness in the world. And we have to learn Torah Sagu'ula. We need to learn about a Yiddishkeit that is expansive that is beautiful, that is wholesome, that can empower children to change the world. Some of you will remember Zero Mostel. You remember? Some of you know. Some can't say they know, but some know, and some really don't know. Okay. So Zero Mostel, his name wasn't Zero Mostel. His name was Shmiel Yoel Mostel. You could look it up. In Hollywood, they know him as Zero. When he got his Oscars, they know him as Zero. In Wikipedia, they know him as Zero. But his real name, I tell you, I know the truth, was Shmiel Yoyal. So why did he change his name to Zero? Did you ever hear of a guy named Zero? It's almost like that song, the, a boy named Sue, where they made it a boy named Zlata or something. The, the, I don't know, what was that group that made those songs? Uh, you remember? I wondered, why did Shmiel Yoyal, a guy, kid from the Bronx, eight brothers and sisters, religious, observant, I think Hasidic family, why did he change his name to Zero? So he explained once. He said, I needed to choose an English name. My name was Shmiel Yoyal. That wouldn't fly in Hollywood. Not so nice for a Philip Shmiel Yoyal. I needed a new name. So I thought, what name would be most suitable for me? He says, there was somebody in my family, somebody very close to him, who would always tell me the same words in Yiddish. Shmiel Yoyal, du bist agarnished. Und du bist alamol, bleiben agarnished. Shmiel Yoyal, you're a zero, you're a nothing, and you're always going to remain a zero. Now I want to give this man nachas. So when I had to choose a name, I chose the name Zero. If you don't make your child feel special, somebody else will. That's what I learned from the story. But it may be in a very different way. I was just in Israel last week, and Ayit from Bnei Brak shared with me such a fabulous story. Rav Kahnman, Rav Shloyme Yosef Kahnman, Zeichet Tzadik Levracha, was the Ponovitcher of, the rabbi of the Lithuanian city of Ponovitch. He had a big institutions, he had a family, they were all 
wiped out in the Holocaust. He was on a fundraising mission, so he survived. He came to Israel in the mid-30s, and he built B'nai Brak, including many institutions besides the Panavaji Yeshiva. He built many orphanages, what were called Bote Avois, orphanages for boys who lost their parents in the war, and orphanages for girls. In fact, they say when Rav Kamen was a very wise man, he was fundraising in South Africa. So he went to a very wealthy Lithuanian, South Africa was built from Lithuanian Jews. And he married many of them back in Eastern Europe. So he used to go there fundraising, I think every year, almost every year. So a Jew who was already secular, he said, Panovichirov, I'll give you a million dollars, this is in the 60s, for your institutions of a neighborhood, with one condition, you don't educate the kids to wear a yarmulke and no tzitzis. If you do that, I give you a million dollars. Panovichirov says, no problem. He says, I want a commitment. He gives a commitment. I want your handshake. The rabbi gives him a handshake. He gets his check for a million dollars. His student says, Rabbi, I don't understand. How do you make a commitment for a million dollars to raise children without a yarmulke, without tzitzis? He says, don't worry, I'll fulfill my word. He took the money. He built an orphanage for girls. (laughs) No yarmulkes and no tzitzis. I'm a chaya. But he built an orphanage. Now listen to what happens. These are girls who lost their fathers, lost their mothers. They're being raised in an orphanage in B'nai Brak under the leadership of the Panovich Rebbe. Obviously, he hired a staff. And Friday night, they have meals. What do they do at the meals Friday night? What do they do? They schmooze, and then they sing. There's a guy living next door in B'nai Brak. What does he do? He hears girls singing. I got Friday night. You know when girls get, get into it. They don't need the potato chips and the cake like the boys. They get into it soulfully and emotionally. They're singing away. And this man couldn't deal with it. So he runs to the Panavijarov, the boss, and he says, Kobe Sheriff, I don't understand you. I'm a neighbor. Friday night, I'm hearing girls singing for hours. But he said, what do you want me to do? Go to the girls. Don't sing. Eat, schmooze, go to sleep. Don't sing. Panavijarov says, I don't know, I have to think about this. He says, what do you have to think? Halacha! It's a serious question, I'm going to ask the Chazoynish. So the Panavijarov goes to the Chazoynish, Rabbeinu Avram Yeshayol Karelitz, who lived in B'nai Brak, passed away there in 1953. This is the years after the war. And he tells the story to the Chazoynish. The Chazoynish, I have to say it in Yiddish, and then I'll, uh, I'll translate. The Chazoynish hears the story, and the Panovich Rav is about to say, you know, do I stop them? The Meidlach singen? Noch dem was they say, and Aduruch, they singen? Wow! Gewaldig, gewaldig! Jede Freitag bei Nacht singen sie? Ah! 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 He says, Panovich Rav, it's true the girls are singing after everything they went through, after all their agony and pain and distress and the nightmares they experienced. They actually have the equilibrium, the serenity, the joy of life to sit together and sing. Wow! What a gift! What a stupendous miracle! The Panavichinov couldn't ask anymore the rest of the question. Sometimes people, in the name of religion, in the name of Judaism, in the name of Allah, they miss the point. 
Chazanish could have told, of course they're not allowed to sing. <laughs> they missed the point. These are girls who had nothing. No families, no mother's hug, no father's kiss. They were survivors. All they had was themselves and their friends. They're singing Friday night. They could find a joy in life, a joy in being Jewish, a joy in Shabbos. That is the greatest miracle. Perspective. Sensitivity. I once heard from my Rebbe, how is it that the first Jewish exile began? And everybody knows the answer this week. Yosef went down to Egypt and the family followed. But that's not how it happened. It happened because he was sold to Egyptian slave. Why was he sold? Reuven had him thrown into a pit to save him. It says clearly, He was supposed to save him. What happened? The answer is, the Pesach indicates, they threw him into the pit, they sat down to eat bread. And when a caravan of merchants came, they sold Yosef. Why wasn't Reuben there? He comes back later, and he says, But why wasn't he there? You threw him in the pit to save him, why did you leave? So Rashi says, because they sat down to eat bread, that's the hint, he couldn't eat. Why couldn't he eat? So one of the interpretations of Rashi is because he was busy fasting. Why was he fasting? Because he was obese. He was diabetic because he was on some new diet that the Chicago doctor came out with. Because he was Jewish and every Jew you know is on a diet. Many. Why was he? So Rashi says, He would fast constantly. When Rachel passed away, Yaakov put in his bed into Bila's tent. Reuven, feeling bad for his mother Leah interfered into Yaakov's intimate life. How many years earlier did this happen? When Yosef was nine. This was when Yosef was 17. This happened nine years earlier. Reuven was fasting for nine years, Rabbi Yisrael of Reuven was fasting for nine years, nine years to repent for trying to protect the honor of his mother. Do you understand what type of kid he was? Nine years later, he still felt bad and he wouldn't sit to eat because he was busy. He was wearing a sack and he was fasting and meditating and davening and doing tshuva and repenting to the Rabbeinu Shalom and to his father for his error, for his mistake. And here is where we see how history happens. The beginning of exile doesn't always happen from bad people doing bad things. Sometimes it happens as a result of great people doing holy things. Here again I have to say it in Yiddish, you'll forgive me, and then I'll translate. He says, Reuven left the pit to go fast and perfect his own spiritual character. Go and dedicate yourself to your own spiritual perfection when there's a child in the abyss. That's what caused the first exile. Sometimes great people, holy people, spiritual people, but how can I go dedicate myself to become heavenly when there's a Jewish child lingering in a pit, in a cistern, in a cave in the abyss, whether it's physical or emotionally. Well, friends, today... There are many Jewish children in the abyss. I can't tell you how many shiva calls this year of parents who bury children who died from overdose. They didn't want to die. 
They died from overdose. Not broken families. Not broken families. Good fathers, good mothers, functional families. Successful people. Financially too. But there's so much pain. There's so many children suffering inside that people sometimes don't even know. And parents are clueless. You'll forgive me. Some principals are beyond clueless. Some educators are mamish clueless. Some fathers and mothers are clueless. And with all due respect, some rabbis are clueless. Not because they're bad people. They tell you, go fast. Go put on a sack. Go do tshuva. There's a child in the pit. That's where Golas begins. And how does Gula begin? Gula begins when we start looking at what's happening in the pit and we don't close our eyes. There was a yeshiva in Petach Tikva in Israel. It was called Ur Yisrael. I think it was named for Rabbi Saul Salanter, the founder of the Muslim movement. There was a yeshiva there. His name was Rabbi Yaakov Naima. He was a pedagogue. Listen to what happened. They once tell him, you know there's always boys in yeshiva that like becoming close with the Rosh Yeshiva. How do you do it? If you're not into learning, what do you do? You tell stories about other boys. It's just a fast way in, you know. We used to have names for them in yeshiva too, but I won't, I won't use those names. So one of the boys says, you know, Rosh Yeshiva, Rebbe, that kid, Metzoy Shabbos, who alech kol Metzoy Shabbat likol nuah. Know what Kol is? He goes to the theater Saturday night. What does a good Jewish kid in Petach Tikva do? He goes to the theaters. In that yeshiva, that was unheard of. So he says, "Really, Alech Yeah. He takes a bus and he goes to the movie theaters. So the Rosh Hashiva says, "Next Mitzvah Shabbos, when he leaves, you tell me." They were excited. I'm a they come running with Tzai Shabbos, Rosh Yeshiva. He just left. Rosh Yeshiva calls a taxi. It was a winter night, a cold winter January night in Israel. He gets into the taxi and he goes to the movie theater. He's wearing his footer mantle, his, uh, his pelts. How do you say it? Uh, the good rubbish of fur coats you see in the pictures, they know how to do it. You know those big, nice ones? It's like, I'm thinking of putting them on. It's good for the pictures. One day, one day. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a 747 with these fur. <laughs> it's not even for warmth. It's just, it's the matzah. It's like the whole matzah. I just like it, I don't know. So anyway, he had one of these. It was like a good hush of a one. And uh, he goes to the movie theater. Now usually in movie theaters, you don't have people with these... Types of rubbish of fur coats. But he goes in, he was on a shlichus, <laughs> and he's waiting for uh, the carbon chattas. And the boy, uh, the boy innocently, you know, Saturday night, that yeshiva, kef, as they say in Israel, he's gonna have a good time. Yellow kef, chaval azman. And he walks into the theater, and who does he see? The Rosh Yeshiva, his face turns yellow, pale, blue, green, pink, red. He wants to bury himself like he's praying. There should be a grave right there. He should say, his Gadal and called him his Oscar. He was so embarrassed. You know, what can he say? If he caught him outside, he can always say he's going to his great-grandmother's funeral. You know, that's the basic excuse of yeshiva boys. His great-grandmother, Bezivuk Shemi, whatever. But now he's in the theater, so he can't be at a Levaya in the theater. 
So where, where, where is he going? And you could say he's going to the Kaisal to celebrate Trump's declaration of Yerushalayim. He's going to Muncie to celebrate Rabashkin's freedom. But in the movie theater, what are you going to do? So the Rosh Hashiva looks at him, and the boy is like, stuck, it's over. The Rosh Hashiva says, I don't understand. Where's your coat? The car, it's cold outside. Where's your coat? He says, I didn't take a coat. I need my boys to be healthy and strong and comfortable. I can't have you going without a coat. Now it looks like you have a long night ahead of you. He takes off his fur coat. He gives it to the boy. He says, you put this on and wherever you go tonight, I don't care where you go, but you don't take off this coat. I need you to be healthy, my son. He says, Rebbe, you also need a coat. He says, now I'm already on the way back. I don't need a coat. I'm going into the car. Tomorrow morning, whenever you come back to Yeshiva, just leave it in my office. He gives him a chibuk, he gives him a hug, he gives him a kiss on his forehead, and he says, have a good time. And he leaves. He goes back to the Yeshiva. The boy told the story years later. He said, I went to the movie theater. I sat down. The play began, or the movie began. Two hours. But all I was thinking the whole time was... The fur coats. <laughs> Don't take off my fur coats. He remained a Jew. He remained a, a, a Yid, a Ben Torah, a Shema Torah, This is an educator. He understood the soul of a child. He understood the heart of a child. He understood the sensitivity of a child. I always wondered, what does it mean? We always put it in Yeshiva, Rashi brings from Gemara, Saita, Daflamid, Vavamid Beis. It also says in Medrash Rab, it says in Zoya, that Yosef had this great test. The wife of Poitifa, every day, day in and day out, asked him to be with her. Vayimoyim, he refused. One day, he came home. The Gemara says in Saita, Ravu Shmuel, Lassus, Trochov. Yosef surrendered. He couldn't take it anymore. He said, okay. And what happened at the last moment? He saw the visage of Yaakov, his father, in the window. And when he saw the image of Yaakov, his father, he abstained. He left his cloak in her hand, and he escaped, and he ended up in jail for 12 years because of it. What does it mean he saw the image of Yaakov in the window? Well, there was CNN playing in the window and Yaakov was interviewed. He didn't know what Yaakov looked like. Yaakov was his father. He was 17 years old when he left Yaakov. What does it mean suddenly in the window he saw the image of Yaakov? What Vosepis? Why not before? Why then? I want to tell you one perspective that I think sums up our mission statement of this generation and certainly the mission statement of my Vegas Midwest. You know, when Yosef disappears... Yaakov hears he was devoured. In Parshas Vayeshev. It says, Vayakumu kol bonav v'chol b'noisav All his sons and all his daughters stood up to comfort him. And you remember the next word? He refused to be comforted. Ask the Erechayim. We never heard that he has daughters. No one ever heard that Yaakov. We know that he had one daughter who was quite complicated. We never heard he had daughters. Suddenly, by Shiva, they all came out of the concert. Well, they were baking brownies and muffins. No one ever heard he had 
daughters, Vayakumu Kol Benoisov, suddenly in the middle of Shiva, 11 daughters emerge from a closet. Where were they? Where, who, why would never hear of them? And when you have 11 girls in your house, you usually hear them. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. I mean, Dina made enough noise, but another 11, oh my God. We never heard of them. So the Rechaim says something brilliant. The Rechaim says, what did they tell him to comfort him? What did they tell him? It doesn't say, it just says they all stood up to comfort him. The Rechaim says, that was the Nechama. Fascinating Rechaim. What was the Nechama? He says, this is what happened. I'm going to use my own words. It was Friday night. Yaakov was crying. Yosef, 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 Yosef. They had no Shabbos table. There were 11 boys around the table and 12 girls around the table. Says the Rechaim, they told Yaakov, keep a cook. Look what a beautiful mishpacha. Look what a beautiful Chicago family you have raised. I'm sorry, Hebron family you have raised. Give a cook! Ru'uvin, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar. This guy is a Rosh Hashimah, this guy is a Rosh Koilo, this guy is a Kodesh, this guy is a Porush, this guy is a leader, this guy made Atzala, this guy made Madregas, this guy made Meshurim, Mizamrim, Mizaskim, this guy is the Sarah Chesed, this one is Amud Hayomin, this one is the greatest Askin that Chicago saw since the 30s. First, I look at the daughters, valedictorian, by Sruchel, by Shana, by Yaakov, by Sodom, I'm a Chaya. Give a cook, Yaakov. Yosef, okay, Yosef, you know Yosef was the black sheep of the family. You know Yosef stood in front of a mirror, Azoy, grooming himself. The guy is dreaming that all the sheaves are bowing down to him. And you know, there were issues there. He didn't mamish fit into our family. He wasn't part of the Messiah. He's busy dreaming, the sun is bowing to him, the moon, come on. He wants the whole world to bow down to him. And he's grooming himself, and he worked. And he ended up in the abyss, yeah, Torah. Not just physically, spiritually. Look at the family. You have a family of 24. You want 24 perfect? Come on. Statistics. You got to lose one. It works for statistics. You want everyone to graduate the system perfectly, really? Finish high school. I'm a high impeccable. Go there to throw. Mirror for nine years. Brisk for six years. Get married in the middle. Hatch them, match them, dispatch them. It doesn't work that way. It works with some, but not with all. Come on, Yaakov. He refused to be comforted. Why? What does Rashi say? You only get comfort if somebody died. When somebody is alive, there's no closure. Yaakov said, my boy is not dead. My boy is alive. You don't know my Yosef. You never knew him, you'll never know him. I do not give up on my boy. Now I want to show you the beauty of Torah. The word Vayimoyin is in Parshish Vayeshev twice. Vayimoyin le'isnachim. You remember where else? When Poitifar keeps on asking Yosef to lay with her, what does it say? Vayimoyin with Ashalshelas. And he refused. What's all this? What's this game? Shalshel is only four times in Chumash. Vayerich, Hayesorah, Vayeshev, and Sav. And the Balkaira say, you know, four times in Chumash. What is this? Open your hearts, my dear friends. 
Yaakov refused to believe that his son was dead. Everyone said, you have a son who ended up in the abyss. The abyss of depression, the abyss of drugs. I'm using it as a metaphor. The abyss of failure. He ended up as a slave, a slave to addiction, a slave to mental illness, a slave to promiscuity, a slave to crazy behavior, a slave to OTD. He's a slave. Your son has sold his soul. And Yaakov said, my son is alive. He's not dead. You know what happens? Very far away, there's a 17-year-old boy struggling very heavily with a woman who does not stop, does not stop trying to trap his soul. And you know what Yosef does? He refuses to surrender his integrity. You know why? Because he saw that he has a father. He has a father who believes in him. It was Yaakov's Vayimoyim that empowered Yosef's Vayimoyim. It was Yaakov's refusal to stop believing in Yosef that allowed Yosef never to stop believing in himself. That's what our children need more than anything else. They need fathers and mothers who believe in them, but not who believe in them when it's easy to believe in them. It's easy to believe in my boy when he's following exactly the path that I orchestrated for him before his bris. Then it's easy to believe in your kids. Who doesn't believe in them? It's a machaya. I'm talking about believing in that Yosef boy. Because of his vayamayin, he could do vayamayin. I once finished a lecture. Approaches me a man, Dr. David Palkovitz, professor of psychology in Yeshiva University and a therapist for 35, 40 years. He heard what I said. I spoke about this. And he says, I want to share with you an experience. In walks one day to my office a 16-year-old boy from Flatbush, New York. Wonderful family. I say, what are you doing here? He says, my father wants me in therapy. Why? I've been thrown out of nine yeshivas already. Pretty good for 16. Not yet. The Guinea Book of World Records, I mean, some of you have done better, but he's close. Dr. Pelkovitz tells me, Rabbi Jacobson, I like, you know, sometimes you see somebody, and after five seconds you just know that you like them. <laughs> you can't help yourself. It's a good guy. He says, this kid was great. I loved him. And after the first session, I said to myself, he ain't need no therapy. He's good. He's on top of his game. His father needs the therapy. So I tell the boy, next week, do me a favor, bring in Papa, bring in Mom, bring in your siblings, and if you have grandparents, bring them in too. I say, Dr. Pelkovitz, I never heard of people bringing in Zaydas and Bubbas into therapy. Really? You can ask an 89-year-old woman, so what are your feelings about your mother? <laughs> we American brats have the luxury to have issues with our mothers. They, they had issues with their mother. They were happy if they had a mother. If they had a mother, they was already magical. If they survived, nobody had the luxury to have all these emotions towards their parents. He says, you're right, but I had a hunch, and the therapist got to follow his hunches. I said, okay. The next week, in comes pop-up, pop, mom, brothers, sisters of this boy, and fathers, father and mother. The 
The Palkovitz tells the father, why don't you share your concerns? He gets up, and here he goes. He says, I have an unbelievable family. And he goes, this one, you thought I was joking. I rush Kailala, rush Masifta, rush Yeshiva, Magid Shia, Machanach. He finished off Yomi seven and a half times. He finished Mishnah Brura 12 times. He's the biggest Balchese. And he goes to his daughter's humble. And I have one 16-year-old boy, sleeps till 4 o'clock in the afternoon, couch potato, plays video games the whole day. He's on his phone. He's addicted. He does nothing. He has a good head. Wastes his life. It's an embarrassment for me. It's an embarrassment for the family. It's an embarrassment for him. As he's talking, his father, the old man, the grandfather gets up and says, I would like to say a few words. And this is what he says. I was born in Poland. I had a big family. I was the black sheep of the family. Today they would diagnose me as ADD, ADHD, PDD, and all the wonderful titles. In Poland, they didn't have these diagnoses. For all kids, there was the same treatment. We even had it in our youth. They took your fingers. You remember anybody had this chos? Pum, pum, pum. This was the treatment for every type of problem. Or they pulled you by your ear. Or they gave you a fraske, a fraske. Some kids, I have to say, were healed miraculously. <laughs> Some not. Okay, but that's how it was. There was one treatment for everybody. Okay, I still had a teacher who locked kids up in the closet, put them in the garbage can and put the garbage over them, and all the other brilliant pedagogic skills that many of us had the schuss to see from uh, the PhDs in education. He says, this is Poland. I was the black sheep. My, my, my brothers learned in Polish, Batimedrashis, Yeshivas, Shtiblach. I didn't. And my father would chastise me. I was street smart. I was an entrepreneur. I was like a businessman star. 1938, I put my hands on a book. I lift up the book. I purchase it. I read it from cover to cover. The name of the book, Mein Kampf, by Adolf Hitler, Yemach Shemoy. I come home. I tell my father, Poland is on the border of Germany. I read Mein Kampf. He is going to do whatever he said he's going to do. In a few years, there will not be a Jew left in Poland. My father looks at me and says, you're nuts. You should sit and learn like your brothers. You won't speak nonsense. I said, listen, I should sit and learn like my brothers, but you know that I'm smarter than my brothers, I'm more savvy than my brothers, I'm more shrewd than my brothers, I have a hunch, and I know it's true, and I'm telling you, take the family and escape now, because it's going to be too late soon. My father argued with me, I argued with him, and at the end I told him, Tati, I'm going to have to go myself. I said goodbye to my father, my mother, my siblings, I left Poland, I left Eastern Europe, I crossed the Atlantic, I came to America. After the Second World War, I found out that I was the sole survivor of my entire family. As you know, I built a beautiful and successful business, and here I am today. I look around my family, and I look at all my grandchildren, and I ask myself, which grandchild resembles me most? In character, in personality, in disposition, and in demeanor. I look, and I see this young man. And he points to that 16-year-old boy and he says, you are a replica of me. And I want to tell you, all of my dear children and grandchildren, if not for a boy like this, according to natural circumstances, none of you 
would be alive today, to be able to sit and learn Torah, I dare you, never ever denigrate a child like this. It's to a child like this to whom you own your existence and your ability to steig and to be successful as humans and as Jews. You're my boy. Dr. Pelkovitz tells me you could cut the tension with a knife. The session was over. Nobody else had anything to say. I look at him, I said, Dr. Pelkovitz, you can't leave me hanging in the middle of a story. What happened at the end? He says, nothing happened. That was the story. He says, what's happening now? He says, now? 25 years later. The grandfather took this boy into his company. And he started to work for him. And he did well. I said, today? That today, this boy runs the whole company. And all of his brothers work for him. <laughs> he had, Yosef had a father who believed in him. I had a relative... Rabyankala Galinsky. You ever heard Rabyankala Galinsky speak? <laughs> he was a relative of mine. He was a very interesting man. An Avardike Balmusser. Ended up in Benebrak and he was a wonderful maggot. He was a, uh, a, pre- a presenter, a pontificator, as they used to say. And he once said something that he heard from the stipler gone. The stipler gone, he said, he shared this with him. And I say this as a Chiddush, because it's not usually one of the things you would expect to hear from the stipler gone. But, Rabbi Yankel Galinsky quoted him. And this is what he said. When Yaakov is running away from his home to Lavan, he says later, Ki bemakli avarti asayardin. I only had a stick. So everybody asks, his father couldn't give him a couple of bucks? When your father sent to get a shidduch for you, Yitzchak, he sent ten camels with the Ritz, with ten Ritz Carltons and half of Madison Avenue. Yitzchak, you sent Yaakov for a shidduch? You can't give him some spending money? A couple of dollars for the mechitra, for the shvigar? Come on. Jewelry for the kala? So everybody knows the story. Rashi says he had a lot of money. What happened? Eliphaz was the son of Esau. He came to pursue Yaakov because Esau sent his son to go kill Yaakov. Eliphaz comes to Yaakov and Rashi says in Parshas Vayetzeh, Eliphaz meets Yaakov. He says, my father told me to kill you. It's time to kill you. So Rashi says, Ulefisha Godal, Yitzchak, Mona Eliphaz grew up in the bosom of Yitzchak, on the lap of Yitzchak, so he couldn't kill Yaakov. So he tells Yaakov, I have a problem. I gotta kill you. But I can't. What should I do? So Yaakov says, I'll give you a shir Mesech the Nadar. Perfect. This is what you do with a guy like Aliphas. It says in Mesech the Nadarim, on me chash of Kames. You hear? If you're poor, you'll die dead. So the Mela, you'll make me poor and there'll be a chalois of death. Great. So he takes Yaakov's money. Yaakov is dead. According to the Gemara, Aliphas is happy. Everybody is wonderful. That's the story. Said the stipler God, Eliphaz was Esau's son. Eliphaz was the father of Molech. The Torah says in Parshas Vayishlach that Eliphaz lived with every conceivable woman he could get his hands on, including with his own mother. His wife was his own daughter. 
I'm not going to get very graphic, but Rashi describes it from the Gemara in Sanhedrin, who Eliphaz was. He was Yenetzatzka. Yitzchok had vision, Yitzchok had foresight. A kid like Eliphaz, he threw out of the house. He kept him on his lap. It was his grandson, he kept him on his lap. So you look, and you say, okay, Yitzchok was a nice guy, and you know, he spoiled these kids, and it was a mistake, he should have thrown them all out of the house. Wait. Was Yitzchak successful? No, Eliphaz became the father of Amalek. Look what we have for Amalek. Wait. Yaakov is running. Eliphaz comes to kill him. Why does Eliphaz not kill him? Because he grew up on Yitzchak's lap. Said the stipler gone, the whole Kalal Yisrael is alive today because Yitzchak held on tight to Eliphaz. Because he didn't throw him out. Yes, Eliphaz never became a Godel Ador. He didn't even become a Ben Torah. He never went to learn Dafyoimi in the morning. But he wouldn't touch Nakhar because of Yitzchak's love to him. And I would add, if I may, you go a little further in Tanakh. I know Jews don't think you're supposed to learn the Bible. They think it's for Christians. But once in a while you could look into the Bible. It's not such a bad book. Won't kill you. There's a book in the Tanakh called Eoiv, Joel. You'll take a look, Eoiv sat shiva. Three friends came to visit him. You'll go to Perik Dal or to Perik Hey, One of his friends is Eliphaz Ateimoni. Eliphaz starts speaking to him brilliant words of eloquence, spirituality, and inspiration. Satrashi. Lefisha Gadal Bechekoishal Yitzchak, Sharsa Alav Shechina. Because Eliphaz grew up on the lap of Yitzchak, ultimately the divine presence dwells on him. On a major part of Sefer Eoiv is created from Eliphaz's words. And yet, today, so many children are dismissed because we don't have the depth, we don't have the tools, we don't have the know-how to be able to look deeper and to see that these are souls that are pieces of God. Every nisham is a chelek eleka mimal mamish. And because we don't have the tools, we often, willingly or unwillingly, consciously or unconsciously, cast away la krem de la krem, the best of the best, the holiest of the holiest, the deepest of the deep, the most sensitive of the sensitive, and we're all doing wonderful things, we're fasting, we're doing tshuva, we're davening, we're learning, when there's children in the pit, stop fasting and go to the pit. And I don't know if there's a community today, any segment that doesn't have dozens, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of children, from wonderful families and difficult families, from broken families and wholesome families, from Heimische families and different families, from this family and that family, not struggling physically, emotionally, psychologically. Not because a father is necessarily abusive or a mother is abusive. Sometimes that too, and those are emergency situations. But sometimes fathers and mothers are good people. But the child is not getting what he or she needs. They're not getting what they need, whether it's academically or socially or emotionally or psychologically or spiritually. And sometimes people don't even notice. We live in a time you have to listen to your children. Stop speaking and start listening. You have to listen to your children. You have to tune into them. You got to go into bed with them, Chavra. Put away the phones. 
You come home 6 o'clock, don't put your phone on vibrant and look at it every 11 seconds. You come home, you put away the phone, you put it in a drawer. You want to look at your messages, go back 9 or 10 or 11, look at me, sit by me and text as much as you want. I don't care. I have my own therapist, I'll do well. <laughs> you could sit here with your phone and text, Gesundheit, I'm fine. I'll deal with my ego and self-confidence issues later. <laughs> but with your children, don't keep that phone here. Put it away, be there, eat supper, make jokes, talk about your day, talk about emotions. Tell them that you also struggle. Let's face it, we have a hard time talking about emotional struggles, especially on this side. We men have a philosophy that it was hard enough to have a hard day. I don't have to talk about a hard day. We believe when you come home, you don't talk. Donkeys talk. Bilam's donkeys talk. Jewish men don't talk. We like sitting, reading, eating, schmoozing, drinking. Women have an opposite philosophy. When you have a hard day, you erst have to talk, but not once. First you tell it to your sister. Then you repeat the whole story to your other sister, then to your mother, then to your sister, then to your girlfriend. And hopefully if you have a husband who's not mamish clueless, after seven, eight times of going through all the events of the day, crying, laughing, giggling, sobbing, then finally there's a little closure. One o'clock in the morning you could relax. We don't like doing that. We don't like talking about emotions. We believe you put a carpet over all emotions, they never happen. When you ask your husband, so what happened during the day? You look stressed. How are you feeling? And he's like, nothing. I'm not feeling anything. Like you're going to ask him tonight. So how was the lecture? Okay. <laughs> he was talking to you. You're so out for lunch. He was talking to you. Your mamas don't get it. You really need a therapist. It's mamas, your mother's issues, I see. Your mother really is. And he's like, oh, here you go again with my mother. Here you go again with my mother. <laughs> Yeah, when we say we feel nothing, we actually mean it. You don't know what that means, I know that. But we actually love hanging out in nothing zones. We're very good over there. We're very good at that place. But with our... <laughs> if you can laugh about it, you're doing well. If you can't laugh about it, then it's come to me. <laughs> with, but with our children, we need to be in tune. There's a beautiful word from the Lechevitcha. The Lechavitch Magad, he once said, Hashem tells Noyach, there's a flood, take your wife with your children and their wives and go into the Teva. Teva means a word. Teva, of course, Tevas. So he says, when there's a flood in the world, take your wife, take your children, take your daughters-in-law, and enter into dialogue. Boyala Teva. You have to have conversations. When there's a flood in the world, you can't rely on osmosis. You can't think, oh, your children are growing up in a vayrimishtub, in a beautiful home, and the latkes and the donuts were mamish endless. And you know the real reason, the pneumiastic, the Kabbalistic reason why we eat so many donuts, especially these years. Because we want to celebrate our victory against the Greeks. And the Greeks were into looks, exercise, fashion, and sports. So we eat hundreds of donuts and latkes to make sure we never look like them. Ever. <laughs> and we do it mahadrin mina mahadrin. This is the mitzvah sayoyim, not to look like the Greeks, chas v'shalom. <coughs> so you think, you have a normal, let's face it, you're normal people. Mainly you're an alcoholic, I'm a sugar non-addict, fine. 
But fathers and mothers think we had a good home. We didn't hit, we didn't scream, we didn't holler, we didn't maim, we didn't bruise. We weren't one of those fathers with the belts, you remember? Your friend, what your friends got? So you think by osmosis, the kids will just blossom. There's a flood. And when there's a flood, you have to enter into dialogue with every son and every daughter. And you have to listen much more than you talk. And you have to be tuned in to social anxiety, emotional anxiety, self-image. What's their perspective on Hashem, on Torah, on mitzvahs? What's their relationship with their parents? What type of home are they growing up in? And we have to be very, very tuned in. And it's not an easy thing. It requires emotional presence. And emotional presence, friends, is very difficult. Especially when you have WhatsApp. How many WhatsApps did you get last night? (laughs) I don't have WhatsApp. For one reason. It's hard for me to be emotionally present without a phone. With WhatsApp, that's it. It's over. You need to be emotionally present. Emotionally present means not mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How was your day? You have a dvartaira? No dvartaira? Why am I paying tuition? <laughs> that's sometimes Friday night conversations. No dvartaira? Really? Really? No, why am I? Really? Why am I paying $12,000 to these lousy people? They can't bring you on. That's not what a Friday night table is. A Friday night table is a table where I bond. I connect. Be resourceful. Be creative. Reinvent the wheel. And don't try to copy other people. Be there for your children based on what they need. I ask a father, I don't understand. You know your child is struggling. Why did you put him into this yeshiva in Muncie? Why did you put him into that school? And he looks at me and he says, what are people going to say about our family if the children are in that school? I said, you know, I never understood the avoid the Zorah of Moilach. There's an idolatry where you take your child and you put him through the fire. I never which Meshuggah the father does that. Baruch Hashem, now I have a new illustration for my shiurim. You're worried about what neighbors are going to say about your family, so you're ready to sacrifice your child. When it's going to come to a shidduch, you're going to choose the wrong girl for him also. So that people will say, what a nice shidduch. So for Shem Brachis, nine yachmas and eight yentas will be happy. And you'll make one boy and one girl miserable for 95 years. And you think you're religious. You worship idols. You don't worship God. You worship social pressure. You worship community. You have no God. You don't even think there's truth in the world. Everything for you is about social stigma. What are they going to say? What are they going to say if I am a father for my children? What are they going to say? You know what? This is a generation where like Avram Avinu, we are summoned to smash idols. And the idols today look much holier than the idols in the days of Terach. They look very holy. All the idols speak in the name of God. But they're idols. They're not based on truth. They're not based on real Avas Hashem, real Avas Atayr, real Avas Yisrael. They're not based on real sensitivity and mysterious nefesh for what a child of Hashem needs. There's other calculations, spiritual or social politics, that come into it. You all saw the video of Rav Steinman, Zeich when he spoke about the child that wasn't accepted in a certain yeshiva, and his opinion about the people who weren't accepted. What was demonstrated as being very religious, he called 
Gaiva, gaiva, gaiva. That's also an idol. And all real arrogance comes from real insecurity. You know, my dear friends, my brother shared with me something that he experienced. I have a brother, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, gives a weekly shear in Manhattan, the west side of Manhattan for a place for decades. He told me the story. One night, a young man comes in and sits down at the class. It's a class for secular Jews, mostly. And he could see that the young man is struggling physically. Motor skills. And after the class, he comes over to my brother, and his speech is impaired. And he sees everything is with a struggle. And he tells my brother his story. He was born, and they immediately noticed a very rare neurological disease affecting his speaking, his motor skills, his intellectual abilities, his movements. He said, my parents are high rollers in Manhattan, wealthy Jewish philanthropists, and they said, they can't deal with us, child who's sick. So they gave me up the day I was born, and I never saw them. I'm 29 years old, I never saw my parents. They both live in Manhattan. They send a beautiful check every month, so I could support myself nicely, but they never wanted to create a bond. My brother thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> Parents live in Manhattan. He lives in, they never met. He calls up the father of this guy, of this boy. And he says, hi, my name is Robert Jacobson. I met this young man. He's a sparkling soul. He says, what do you want? He's your son. He hangs up the phone. So my brother thought maybe he got disconnected. He calls back. Says, you haven't got the message, you don't mix into my business, boom. It wasn't exactly what he hoped for. He called the mother. The mother starts crying and says, you can't really make us go back to a decision we made 30 years ago. It's not fair. My brother said, I don't understand you. There are orphans whose entire life, their entire life, they want to know who their father was, who their mother was. They ask anybody, you knew my father, you knew my mother, tell me about them. You have here a son who's alive. Doesn't he deserve the dignity of knowing who his father is? It doesn't make sense. She says, you have to talk to my husband. He waits a while. To credit of my brother, he calls back the father. And the father's about to hang up. He says, before you hang up on me, listen to what I'm telling you. He doesn't want to live with you. He doesn't want anything from you. I'm telling you, he's one of the most beautiful souls I ever met in my life. You're going to enjoy meaning it, but he deserves the value and dignity of knowing who is father and mother. This does not make sense to me. Father says, I have to think about it. Calls back a week later. The father says, I'll meet him if you come to the meeting. Come to our penthouse above Central Park in Manhattan. Sunday, he gives him a time. The next Sunday, my brother and this boy come to the penthouse of his parents. It's a beautiful penthouse. He could see they're very, very, very well to do. They walk into the home. For the first time, a 30-year-old, impaired, disabled man meets his father and mother. They sit down, there's chocolate and nuts. Nobody is looking at anything, at anybody. There's no eye contact. What do they talk about? Sunday afternoon talk. Football, the weather, etc. Ten minutes, no one is talking about anything. Talking about Sunday afternoon football. So my brother breaks the ice and he says, Okay, it's nice to talk about the weather. It's certainly nice to talk about Trump. It's nice to talk about a lot going on. But that's not what we're here for. I've met your son some time ago. I was 
enamored by his soul, by his glow, by his refinement, and by his depth. And I thought it would be beneficial for both to meet. My brother tells me, why, why, he says, this boy opens up his mouth, he looks at his mother, he looks at his father. He had a hard time talking. So the words came out not, not perfect, but this, was, this is what he said verbatim. Mama, he couldn't say ma. He couldn't say ma or pa. He said, mama, papa, as you know, I am not perfect. But mama and papa, you're also not perfect. I have forgiven you for being imperfect. I hope one day you'll be able to forgive me for being imperfect. At that moment, the mother burst out crying. She went over to her son and she embraced him. The father then embraced his son afterwards. My brother told me at that moment I felt like a shatchan after the chuppah, a matchmaker after the wedding. I said, have a good day. Enjoy each other. And he says, I just walked out. The family was reunited that day. What a profound challenge of so many of our children. Have you forgiven your child for being imperfect? Truthfully. He said, Mama, Papa, I forgave you. I know you're not perfect. I know you made decisions because you're imperfect. Could you ever forgive me for being imperfect? Can I really accept my child for who he or she is? Or will I forever be frustrated and annoyed at my child for not fitting the role I created for him or her? Will I forever reject my child emotionally deep inside because my child does not fit in the box that I orchestrated for this? Can I really open my heart to infinity, to truth, to God, who doesn't have a box, who doesn't have an image? And really be there for who my child is, not for who I expected my child to be, or I would have hoped my child to be. This doesn't mean there's no pain. There's pain. But can I really do that for my child? And trust me, your child knows. Whether you have done it or not done it. You could smile, you could send them latkes, you could buy her stuff. My child knows if his tati believes in him or his tati doesn't believe in him. My daughter knows if mommy is there for her in a deep way, tati is there for her or not. Benjamin Zander lives in Boston. He's a Jewish Brit. He's a world-renowned composer. He gave a TED Talk, I think in 2008 or 2009 that I heard. And Zander said he had a Jewish friend who survived Auschwitz, a woman. She told him these words. I was 15 when we were transported to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Our parents were gone. I had an eight-year-old brother. We were on the cattle car together. Me, 15, eight-year-old brother. On the way, I take a look at my brother and I see he's missing a shoe. 
You know, how does a 15-year-old girl speak to her 8-year-old brother? You're such an idiot. You're such a meshugana. You're such a lazy kid. You're so irresponsible. You don't have a shoe. Mommy is not here to get you another shoe. Tati is not here to get you another shoe. We're going to go wherever we go. How are you going to survive without shoes? I can't believe how irresponsible you are. And I can't take care of this like you. And you be careful to keep on your shoe. And she says, I screamed at my little boy, my little brother. And oh, do I regret it because it was the last words I ever told him. Because the moment we came to Auschwitz, we were separated. And a few hours later, he was reduced to ashes in the crematoria. And that was the last time I ever spoke or saw my brother. I survived the death camp. And on the day of liberation, January 27th, 1945, a few weeks after Hanukkah, when the Soviets liberated us, and I walked out of the cursed gates of Auschwitz, Arbit Macht frei, and I made a vow to myself that I'm going to embrace life. I saw so much death, and I'm going to take on life and live life to the fullest. But then I made a second vow to myself. And the second vow that I made to myself was, I will never say anything to a child that could not stand as the last thing I will ever say to them in my life. I will never say anything that if I knew it was the last thing I'm saying to my child, I would never say it, I would not say this. Now that's a pretty big calling. Especially when you're going to come home now and nobody's sleeping. And the kitchen is turned over, and there's orange juice all over the place. And they managed to found the She'eris Haplate of the Pach Echot Shoshemen, Shalayachasim, and they turned it into a quantity of not eight days, but eight months of oil all over the new couch that you just saved up for and bought. Right? It's not something we can always live up to, but it's a perspective that we can grow into. And that is why I and we should be moved both spiritually, socially, and with our heart and with our wallet and with our minds and with our time. Each and every one of us should ask ourselves, which child in the pit can I tend to? There's nobody today who is beyond influence. Influence today does not belong anymore to leaders and great rabbis. This is the era where influence belongs to every single individual. It's individuals today who change the world. Individuals who care. Individuals whose minds are open, whose souls are open, and whose hearts are open. Madregas Midwest has done incredible work here in Chicago and in the Midwest, I think today for close to 2,000 children to help them see the future of their lives not in the abyss, but an infinite potential and possibility. May we rise up to the moment of history and become not part of the problem, but part of the solution. Thank you very, very much.
This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.